Uh, well, like John said, my name is Jordan Hum. Um, I'm an MDiv student at Western Theological Seminary. And my family has been worshiping here at Fifth for seven years, I think. Um, so it's a joy to be preaching this morning. Would you pray with me? God, by your spirit, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to comprehend, and soft hearts ready to be transformed. In Christ's name, amen. If you haven't been around the last few weeks, we are in the middle of a sermon series moving through the book of Ephesians, which is one of many letters in the New Testament, this one containing general truth and instruction relevant to all Christians everywhere. Uh, the first half of the letter deals with our identity as Christians. Who are we? And the second half deals with what we do as a result of who we are. So last week, John began the second half of the series dealing with the calling of the Christian. Something he said that I want us to hold at the front of our minds this morning is that when Jesus looks at you, looks at me, he sees a person of immeasurable value and worth. He sees you and he thinks well of you. So out of that reality, we grapple with how our lives should look if we are seeing others the way that Jesus sees us. This morning, we're going to work through the implications of what it means to have been made new. Jesus, through his work on the cross, understands us as different than we were before. So Jesus calls us to cast aside our old selves, to put on the new self, to see ourselves the way that Jesus sees us, and to act accordingly. So in a way, this portion of Ephesians is a practical guide to occupying the spiritual territory that already belongs to us in Christ, but that we have yet to fully possess. John wrote that line. It was really good, so I borrowed it. <laughs> Listen now to God's word for us. So hear now the instructions for Christian living from Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 32. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood 
and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. When we put on the righteousness of Christ, we are new. The text uses the language of uh, putting off and putting on, but think about it less like playing dress up and more like an occupational uniform. Um, If a surgeon makes a career shift to be an astronaut, she doesn't show up to launch day in her scrubs. When we put off the behavior of the old self and put on the behavior of the new self, we aren't wearing a costume or trying a new hobby. We are letting our external actions reflect the internal reality that we are different people. Ontology is a branch of metaphysics that deals with the nature of being, the defining properties of something. In Christ, we are ontologically changed. The nature of our being, our defining properties, change. Theologian Rowan Williams says in his book, Being Disciples, that discipleship is about how we live, not just the decisions that we make, not just the things we believe, but a state of being. To be a disciple is to have experienced an ontological shift and to inhabit new defining properties that are different than the defining properties we had before. If you are in Christ, you are different now than you were before. Not because of anything you did, but because of God's redemptive grace. So from that place of understanding that we don't earn a new identity, but are given it in Jesus, we lean into a new way of being, a new way of living. Our text today is not so much a list of arbitrary do's and don'ts as it is a description of the essential defining properties. We are in Christ Christ is in us. That's our state of being. Earlier in this chapter in Ephesians 4.1, we are told to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. With regard to our former way of life, 
we are told to put off our old selves and are made new in the attitudes of our minds and put on the new self. So this morning, we're going to work through what the old self looks like, how we undergo the transformation from old to new, what the new self looks like, and what that means for the world. What is the old self? So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. It's important to note right off the bat that we are not strictly dealing with an ethnic distinction between Jews and non-Jews. Earlier in this letter, it's established that the church crosses cultural boundaries and is called to live in unity within that cross-cultural body. So while people within the cultural category of Gentile in this historical context were most likely outside of the church, um, a more accurate understanding of Gentile in this case means people who have not yet been renewed by the spirit of Jesus. It's a culturally grounded generality to distinguish the old self, a person living outside of God, from the new self, a person living with God who has been transformed by God. What are the characteristics of life outside of God? We have a list. Futility of thinking, darkened in understanding, separated from the life of God because of ignorance and hard-heartedness, a loss of spiritual sensitivity leading to indulgence in every kind of impurity, and fullness of greed. Phew. This list is actually a description of a progression, a kind of cause and effect. The Gentile has futility of their thinking, we often think of sin having bent our wills away from God, um, our ability to make right choices, but sin has also affected our faculty of reason, our ability to think clearly and to perceive the world as it is has been warped by sin. Futility of the mind means that outside of the redemption of Jesus, our minds are unable to perceive things as they really are. So because of the fallenness of the faculty of reason, the Gentile is darkened in understanding and has in fact leaned into that darkness, pressing into ignorance and hard-heartedness, which has resulted in separation from God. And that separation from God, that alienation, has desensitized them from what is right and wrong. So it leads to a headlong plunge into depravity of every kind. This is what sin does to us. It maligns, it decays, it distorts, so that a person who perhaps begins by actively denying their conscience to choose sinful behavior, eventually becomes numb to their conscience entirely so that right and wrong are completely flattened and indiscernible from one another. But that is not the way that you learned in Jesus, Ephesians says. If the old self was futile in its thinking, its mind darkened and ignorant, then what of the new self? We have become disciples of Christ. A defining characteristic of a disciple is purity, holiness, and righteousness. 
For the gift of faith to take root, there must be a softening of the heart, a, a quickening, a return to false sensitivity, to purity. A soft heart seeking awareness and truth, a redemption of the faculty of reason, a mind illumined by the Holy Spirit. The text says to the disciple, that, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your mind and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. The NIV translation of the Bible that I just read, um, it says, that however is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ. But the word about doesn't actually appear in the original text. So I think some other translations, I hope I'm allowed to say this, are a little bit more accurate because they don't add the implied about. Um, the NRSV translation says, that is not the way you learned Christ. Why does this matter? Well, it means that we don't just learn about Christ the way that we can learn about electricity or rock formations, or if you're my toddler watching Mr. Rogers, the way that crayons are made. We learn Christ the way a child learns his mother. We learn Christ not unlike the way that we learn one another, by personal encounter and relationship, by being together, by hearing each other, so that we know the sound of the voice of Jesus, just like a child can hear the sound of his mother's voice from across a crowded room. Our darkened understanding has heard the voice of Jesus. Our ignorance has been taught in the truth of Jesus. Our futile minds have been renewed by the spirit of Jesus. Jesus is the teacher. Jesus is the subject matter being taught. And Jesus is the very mechanism by which we are able to learn at all. There's something else subtle and interesting here, by the way. You heard about Christ and were taught in him with accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You learned Christ, and truth is in Jesus. Christ is a title, it means Messiah, the figure who performs the function of providing salvation. And Jesus is the flesh and blood, material, physical person, who occupied time and space in human history to perform the function of Christ. The historical person of Jesus is himself the embodiment of the truth. And what is the truth about what it means to have received salvation? It means that we are reborn into union with Christ, which makes us more like Jesus himself. This rebirth is not our own doing, who can give birth to themselves, but it's God's first and eternal yes to us in Christ. Our stepping into righteousness is not us trying to save ourselves. It's our responsive yes to God who says yes to us first. Our actions are concurring with 
or agreeing with the work of salvation that God has done in our hearts. We are becoming, in fact, more truly who we are when we say yes to Jesus. What fruits ought the illumination of the Holy Spirit yield in the life of disciples when that union with Christ makes us more fully who we are? What does it look like to be new? Therefore, the text says, and it offers a description of the defining characteristics, the essential qualities of a person who has experienced the ontological shift from old to new, who has been reborn, who has become more fully themselves, who is on the road to becoming more fully like Jesus. You don't do certain things anymore, scripture says, because that's not who you are anymore. I want you to notice something. All of these defining characteristics of the new self concern how we treat others, speak truthfully and constructively to others, respect the resources of others, and share your resources with others. Be kind, compassionate, and eager to forgive others. Colossians 3 gives us an echo of this description. I won't read the whole thing now, but it includes language like this. For you died, and your life is now hidden in Christ. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. I'm gonna zoom in on two of the themes in this list of instructions, speech and stealing, because it's easy to breeze past these, but I think there might be more here than meets the eye. The word says, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. And then later, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Unwholesome talk isn't just lewd speech or overt hatred or blatant lies. It is unwholesome to speak about someone, a person or a group of people, in a way that denies or degrades the image of God in them. This includes allowing stereotypes and biases to dominate how we speak about someone, or speaking with callous about someone's hardship, or speaking in such a way that highlights another's flaws and disregards their positive qualities. Unwholesome speech involves speech that elevates uh, the merit or the worth of a group of people above another. This passage is fascinating because it, it touches a little bit on our cultural context. Perhaps as backlash against falseness in speech, um, a high value has been placed on telling it like it is. But the instruction to speak truthfully does not mean say whatever happens to be on your mind. Because if you're like me, 
mean and unfair thoughts are just whizzing through your brain all the time. This passage tells us to speak truthfully, but then it immediately tells us that our speech should be only what is helpful for building others up and free from slander. Proverbs 25:18 says, like a war club, a sword, or a sharp arrow is the one who bears false witness against a neighbor. And Proverbs 12:18 says that rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. The world seems to present us with two bad options sometimes. Say whatever sounds good, even if it's not true, in order to get what you want, or tell it like it is, even if it's malicious. But God says no. Dishonesty and malice are characteristics of the old self. That's not who you are anymore. And what about stealing? Ephesians says this, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Thou shalt not steal. One of the Ten Commandments given to us in the Old Testament had widespread societal and economic implications to the Israelites, just like it does for us today. Stealing in the biblical sense has as much to do with bank robbing and shoplifting as it does with tax evasion or paying workers unjust wages. Outside of Christ, you collected an income through unjust or lazy means in a way that robbed the livelihood of others and you were greedy with it. But in Christ, you do honest work that doesn't exploit or violate anyone. And that income isn't just for you. It's for the purpose of uplifting the needy. The world constantly fuels this anxiety in us to get what we deserve or cling to what we have or protect what's ours. But what we have and what we accrue isn't just for us. Christians believe this radical notion that there's actually enough for everyone. So if we, if we take this passage at face value, that what we have belongs to God and is for the sake of the poor, that's kind of a relief, isn't it? That instead of exhausting ourselves by clenching our fists, we can just release. Later in the book I mentioned, Rowan Williams says that the bread that is shared among Christians is not only material resource, but the recognition of dignity. We feed each other by honoring the truth of the divine image in each other. We can directly steal resources and we can deprive others of resources, which is a different form of stealing. But we can also steal dignity by refusing to honor the immeasurable worth and value that God has placed within every single human being by making them in God's image. What does the new self mean for the world? Jesus says, I wanna set you and you and you free from the grip of sin. And the effects when you say yes aren't just for you. They're for the sake of your neighbor and for the sake of the world. 
The word says to us, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ in God forgave you. In the cleansing of his blood, Christ has torn down the barrier between us and God, which in turn has torn down the barriers between us and other people and each other. When I sin, I am not the only person affected by my sin. In fact, it's often true that my sin actions afflict other people in this life more than they afflict me. So when God sets me free, when I repent, when I change my mind about how I understand myself and the world because of Christ and therefore change my actions, when my sin is uprooted from the soil of my life, the other people planted in my environment, they get to be set free from the entanglement of the root of my sin. When I put away bitterness, wrath, and anger, it means every life I have influence over gets to be free from my bitterness and my wrath and my anger. Christ wants to do a work of renewal in our individual lives. But Christ also wants to do a work of renewal in our communities. In Christ, we are called to a new society. Not only individual, internal transformation, but social and corporate transformation. We are called to put on not just a new way of seeing and understanding ourselves in the world, but also a new way of engaging with and organizing it. A society is not just a family or a neighborhood, it's a conglomerate of people conducting lives and making decisions and building systems that both directly and indirectly affect one another, including people who will never actually meet each other. A society concerns the other as much as the friend, the stranger as much as the brother. So the old self that we are called to step out of, the sinful self, is not just the individual actions of personal sinful behavior. The old self is the old society, the old way of both engaging with and organizing the world. We say yes to Jesus, and we put down bitterness and take up tenderheartedness. We put down malice, we take up kindness. We put down wrath, and we take up forgiveness. And as a result, we are inviting the world around us to experience the reverberations of God's heart for the world. This is a posture that takes toward the other, that takes everything that feels normal in this world and flips it completely on its head. What does a society motivated by tenderheartedness, kindness, and forgiveness look like? What, for example, would a prison system in a society motivated by tenderheartedness and kindness and forgiveness look like? Lives hidden in Christ have undergone an ontological shift. We've become different, so we behave 
differently. We speak truth to our neighbors. We feel anger, but we don't sin in a rage. We do honest work and we use those earnings to meet the needs of others. When we speak, our words give grace to those who listen. We are kind, we are tender-hearted, and we forgive readily because Christ forgave us. When our outward lives are discordant with our inward transformation, we live in a state of fragmentation, the opposite of wholeness and integrity. This is how John Calvin understood what it meant to grieve the Holy Spirit. No language, he says, can adequately express this solemn truth that the Holy Spirit rejoices and is glad on our account when we are obedient to him in all things and neither think nor speak anything but what is pure and holy. And on the other hand, is grieved when we admit anything into our minds that is unworthy of our calling. Friends, our behavior does not save us. Our actions do not earn us the love of God or earn us salvation. But our behavior is the fruit that results from our hiddenness in Christ, the yield of God's transformation of our being. The theologian John Stott says that Ephesians emphasizes that being, thought, and action belong together and must never be separated. The world is watching and how we act tells the world who we serve. The demonstration of the gospel, living like Jesus, is an essential component of sharing the good news with people who don't yet know the gospel and with people who think they already know the gospel. So it feels like the stakes are quite high, doesn't it? To live lives worthy of our calling. But take heart, God does not call us into lives that are impossible. We're called to take up our cross. This is hard. It will cost us everything, but it is not impossible. The old self without Christ's righteousness is bankrupt. But because the spirit dwells within us, because our new selves are the temple of the Holy Spirit, we have the resources that we need within us. We have the resources to speak with truth and gentleness in a world beckoning us to lie our way to the top and issue scathing teardowns. We have the resources to forgive and perhaps even give the benefit of the doubt in a world that is beckoning us to hold grudges and assume the worst about somebody. And we also have the resources to apologize and repent and admit when we cause harm in a world that is beckoning us to deflect and to defend and to dig our heels in. The new self is a vessel for God's love for everyone, everywhere. And in Christ, not in ourselves, but in Christ, we are able. I want to leave you with a quote from one of my favorite books. 
It's called Gilead by Marilyn Robinson, um, and it's an extended letter from a dying pastor to his young son. To be forgiven is only half the gift. The other half is that we can also forgive, restore, and liberate. And therefore, we can feel the will of God enacted through us, which is the great restoration of ourselves to ourselves. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, would you pray with me? God, by your Spirit, would you renew our minds? Would you give us soft hearts? Would you guide us and illumine the path in the way of Jesus so that we are faithful in bearing the fruit that bears witness to your work in our lives? In Christ's name, amen.